everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. I'm JG2 and Squad 1. Respond up to 1601 Avenue. This is our Chavez Southeast. Cross City University in Buena Vista. This is B2 Spar Box 8052. You're responding out to a 61 Bravo 1. There's a blue Ford truck on the north side of the Isotopes parking lot that has about three or four gallons of diesel on the ground. Calling party will flag you down. Engine 2 Squad 1, 1601 Avenue, Cesar Travis Southeast for a 61 Bravo 1. Hey, everybody. This is the AFR podcast. Today, our topic's going to be going over hazmat. So I got three people, nice stuff, to join me today. We have Captain Jason Charlton, Lieutenant Mark Hawkes and Captain Kat Basile. So thanks, everybody, for coming on and being part of this. Thanks for having us. All right. So the way I wanted to approach this hazmat topic is just thinking of from uh, maybe a lieutenant over at 4s or 13s that's having to upgrade as a squad captain or somebody taking overtime. So, you know, this would mean somebody has the training, but it could be a little bit of a a while since they actually took the course. And also this is going to be able to apply to all the first line units that are showing up to these calls that might need to get the, the squad out there to respond with them. Um, okay. So Jason, first I'm going to go to you. Our goal is to talk about the main calls that the squad goes on. So probably one of the biggest roles that the squad has is uh, being that safety officer. So can you discuss that position for me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like you said, about 99% of the time, whoever's the incident commander is going to assign the squad to safety right away as soon as you get on scene. And the first thing I'm going to do if it's a structure fire is do a 360. And I'll try to turn off the utilities while I'm doing the 360 if I can. I have something to shut the gas at, down at the meter. And then if I can from the exterior, I'll shut off the electricity as well. Um, and I, on the way to a call... If it's a confirmed structure fire, I will get the RKI monitor up. So that has six gases that it tests for. And I have that on my hip as I'm doing the 360. And one thing I've noticed are very high levels of hydrogen cyanide outside the structure as I'm doing the 360. I mean, the monitor is usually screaming mm. by the time I'm done with the 360 uh, for hydrogen cyanide. And I'm regularly getting readings that are about three times the short-term exposure level, the permissible exposure level um, for working. So, all right. So what, what should be the takeaway from that? Takeaway from that is, um, there's disgusting air to breathe outside of a structure fire and we should be very careful. Um, I know it's been mentioned before drivers right in front of the house pumping inhale a lot of smoke and there's the possibility that, I mean, I've seen drivers go use their SCBA when they're at the pump panel before. And that's something to consider. Um, especially if it's really smoky. So yeah. Yeah. And even if you're just uh, outside, maybe if it, a defensive fire, but you know, at a certain point that that smoke just becomes uh, too much. So I would just say anytime you, you see there's smoke, you know, you know, there's bad stuff in the air and um, our monitors are only detecting a few things. So what is that six gas actually going to be detecting? It's uh, the first thing is oxygen and then carbon monoxide, which we don't usually get a lot of early on in a structure fire. Um, hydrogen sulfide, which is sewer gas. And then uh, methane, which is what it uses to conduct or detect combustible gas, hydrogen cyanide, and then either chlorine or ammonia, depending on the monitor. So I just wanted to mention to crews that uh, the monitors that we have on the squads do only test for a specific number of gases, but the fires that we have 
release a lot more toxic gases. And most of these are from incomplete combustion. So it's a good thing to remember for our crews that all of us have a carbon monoxide detector, which shows that main product of incomplete combustion. And if we do have large amounts of incomplete combustion or carbon monoxide, we can always assume that we have those other toxic byproducts, such as formaldehyde. We have our hydrogen cyanide. We have a lot of nitric oxides as well. So our crews can use that without the squad being present. Okay. Yeah, good to remember. Um, and Jason, what are some other maybe hazards you've run across as you're doing a 360 or some dangerous situations that come up on fires that the safety officer is responsible for calling out? Uh, I've had a couple dogs that weren't too happy that I was in the backyard. Um, dogs that were probably scared because they just ran out of a building that was on fire. So that's been interesting. I've heard about people falling into swimming pools before. Never experienced that, but I'm definitely on the lookout, especially at night for things I could trip over or you know, things I'm not seeing as I'm looking at the building that's on fire going around the house. And I'm also looking for a basement too, um, something that I think they should determine before I get there, but it's something that I've found before where there are rooms below grade that haven't been reported yet. Got it. Okay. All right. So moving along, we're going through some of the most common calls. Let's get into a gas leak is probably seems like one of the most frequent calls the squad goes on other than the, the 32s nowadays. Yeah, exactly. The, the 32s. Um, now, we go to gas leaks. They're either going to be indoor or outdoor. And if it's an outdoor gas leak, it's usually just going to be a pumper and then a squad that's dispatched. Uh, we get canceled more often than not before we get there. But if we do arrive on scene and the pumper's there, we want them to have a charge hose line in place. And then I'm going to detect, use the combustible gas indicator to see if there is natural gas in the air. Depending on how bad it is, uh, we may, if there are houses around or buildings around, we may check the interior of those buildings to see if it's spread at all there but for the most part an outside gas leak is pretty straightforward okay yeah, so what what's the actual like process like so we're, you're on the squad you got the combustible gas indicator you're trying to decide where is it safe so just walk me through that process so pretty much i'm going to walk toward the leak or the reported leak until it starts reporting um, natural gas and then i'll walk around it to get a perimeter basically if that's possible so yeah. wherever it's beeping is going to be your perimeter? Pretty, pretty much where I'm not going to want to be or want any of our crews yeah. to be. So start there and evacuate that area exactly, before yeah. you come up with a game plan? Exactly. And then, uh, Kat, you were mentioning crews having a carbon dioxide extinguisher. I don't know if you could explain the, the way that's going to work for these gas leaks. That's correct. Uh, most of our guys, per SOGs, are required to get that charged line out to protect any crews that happen to be going into uh fix that leak but there are a number of different extinguishers that we do carry on our engines that work just as well and we do need to follow our SOGs and get that charged line out but pulling out a CO extinguisher or a dry chem extinguisher those two work very very well for these types of fires especially the CO extinguisher because it is heavier than air it's going to go into that hole and it'll stop the fire cut off the oxygen allow those crews working in there to get out but it doesn't fill up the hole with mud like water would, so crews can quickly get back in there and hopefully stop that leak. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I didn't think about before you brought it up about not getting that, that site all wet and muddy. Okay, let's move on to uh, carbon monoxide alarms going off. I'm sure a lot of people would just call off. They, they're not sure why it's beeping, but something's beeping at them, so... Again, Jason, having the most squad time here, how do you deal with that situation of a carbon monoxide alarm in a house? 
And like you said, the we'll get dispatched and we'll go through the entire house basically if there's a carbon monoxide detector going off. Even if we get there and it seems like it's just a low battery indicator going off, um, I'll go through the entire house and see if we get anything. Um, all of our trucks should have CO detectors as well. So usually if we don't arrive first, whichever truck does is going to have a monitor and they usually have gone through the house first. Okay. See if they get anything. And then Kat, where do we need to hold that monitor? Uh, what are the properties of carbon monoxide we need to know so we know if we're you know, using the monitor right? Well, carbon monoxide is a gas that's going to have a vapor density that's very close to what oxygen or the air is. So it will readily mix evenly with the air. Any crew that goes in does need to check at all levels in a room, so up high towards the ceiling, as well as in the middle and then down at the floor. Especially if you have any uh, closets or cabinets, you also want to remember to check in there because that gas may have gotten trapped in those specific areas. So get that monitor in there. Okay. So if it's a high reading and there is CO present, where do we go from there? Well, if we get any indication of CO at all, we're going to get everyone out. And we should have everyone out already. I mean, when we get there, that's something that dispatch will tell them. Get everyone out if you think there's a carbon monoxide leak. Um, We need to call out the gas company and have them see if they can figure out where the leak is. But the main thing is to get everyone out. 35 parts per million, anything below that, in theory, we can operate without going on air for a short period of time. But, I mean, I've had readings that are many times higher than that before at certain structures, and so we need to be on air reading from our SCBA if we're going through the building and it has high levels of CO. And then just the opposite situation, what if you – walk through the house, a person called because they're worried that their monitor beeped at them and you're getting all zeros? We'll tell them we had no response from our instrument, no instrument response, and that's our way of saying our instruments are not indicating there's any CO in your house. Um, I'd recommend you replace the batteries in your CO detector, you know, things like that. But if we don't have any indication there's any CO, then there's not a whole lot we can do for them at that point. Okay. All right. Hey, Mark, we'll get you in on this conversation. We're going to hit up uh, the fuel leaks next. And you were mentioning that you responded to a pretty big fuel leak recently. I don't know if you could tell that story real quick and how you dealt with it. Well, technically, I did respond to it, but I was called a little later. Um, I wasn't the primary person on scene, but it was uh, Station 4 as well as Engine 2 and Battalion 1. Apparently, there was a smaller version of an MC-306 that was rear-ended by another vehicle. It was a hit-and-run. Uh, the MC-306 was going on the on-ramp on I-25 on Central and Locust on the west side of I-25 and damaged one of the baffles of the MC-306. So that baffle was carrying approximately 13 to 1,400 gallons of diesel fuel, and it leaked all the way straight down to the front of the ramp to the sewer drains on one side of the, the road and the sewer drain on the Central and Locust. Um, by the time that what I heard, um, Engine 2 was unseen, the New Mexico DOT was already there putting some dirt on the ramp to they could absorb most of the fuel. And Station 4 personnel were already diverting and, and uh, containing most of the fuel that they were able to contain, not to go into the sewer drains. Squad 1 was able to use a lot of their microblades to go ahead and, and microblaze the uh, diesel fuel. But some 1,200 gallons maybe went down into sewer drains, and once we called the water treatment plant, they closed down their pumps and Majority of it just went down to the river. And all right, Jason, can you talk about just a smaller scale response? Um, maybe just a, you know, you can go something super small like 29 Bravo or 
something that a crew might actually call the squat out for maybe a little bit bigger than your normal dumping kitty litter on it for a fuel leak. Sure. That was the, what Mark just talked about was unusual. Normally we get called out. People say there's hundreds of gallons on the ground and it's, you know, five gallons. This was legitimate 1300 gallons spilling out, which is not, not that normal. But if you have a semi uh, gets into a, an accident, they have saddle tanks on the side of the semi. They can hold anywhere from 50 to 100 gallons each. So it's possible you could be dealing with a 50 or 100 gallon spill. At that point, it's appropriate to call out the squad. We have a bunch of kitty litter on there. We can use that to absorb it, and then we can put the microblaze on to deal with the, the diesel or the gasoline um, at that point. Okay. Are you ever able to uh, plug that leak? We are, definitely. Um, with the saddle tanks, it depends on where the leak is. Obviously, if it's at the very bottom, it's harder. But um, we have uh, something called plug and dike we can use to stop that leak. And that's what we usually try to do um, is to get that leak stopped so that they can tow the unit somewhere and, and get it fixed. Okay. All right. We're going to move on to like a white powder substance. So I'll direct this at you, Mark, because I'm sure you're aware of all the times, you know, among all the shifts that this comes up. How frequent is it and what should crews do when responding to, a, say, a white powder so the last year, we have responded to approximately uh, three to four white powder calls. One was at Rio Rancho. Uh, FBI was called on that one, and FBI ended up calling the U.S. Mail to help out on that one. Uh, one was in the FBI building, and two of them were in the APD locations. So on all three of them, people were already handling the packages. And um, what we wanted to do first is, if any, once we got on scene, is if any one of them have been exposed to it, do they feel any symptoms, and what do they see? Was it in the package, envelope? Did we see any uh, any letters saying that it was a threatening letter or anything? Just questions like that. When I get the phone call, the first thing I, I do is I start calling people like the FBI. He, they want to know right away because it's just a, a suspicious package and a white powder. So that's what I do. So the guys on scene, they'll usually do run, um, I believe, a checklist. Is that Correct there, Cap? Yeah, we do have a checklist. Depending on what lab it's going to go to, the one for New Mexico labs, they do have a very specific checklist that we use to make sure that we account for any radiation, um, biologicals, acids, bases. And that checklist can be very helpful so that if you do forget something, you can refer to that checklist to make sure that you've got everything covered. And once we go through our checklist, we got a bunch of monitors to make sure that there is nothing going on with that uh, white powder. As, for example, our 2020 kits, we do have a Rigaku, and uh, we do have a new monitor that's going to be coming out hopefully sometime next week or the following week, which is the MS-908, which is uh, very, very sensitive into picking up different kinds of uh, chemical warfare agents and uh, biologicals and well as uh, drugs and explosives as well. So... We could go and start using that route as well. All right. And then, see, Jason, can you walk me through your initial response? Say you're the first one there determining that it's a, a unknown white powder at a school. Let's say it's at a school in the office. How do you deal with that? Um, at that point, we're going to get everyone out of there. We're going to figure out who was in the area that may have been exposed to whatever it was and separate them outside and... Um, is from the squad's perspective, I want to find out what the white powder is. And so we have, Mark mentioned the 2020 kit. It doesn't identify what it is, but it'll say what it's not. So we can check basically for the presence of protein or if the substance, the white powder, is acidic or basic. And that can tell us whether it's something simple like 
chalk, for instance, at a school, or whether it has the potential to be something like you know ricin or anthrax or something like that. So, how about a uh, response PPE in that situation? The main thing you want to protect is your airway at that point. We I could see a situation where we would just be on full bunkers on air, basically, uh, to go in and investigate that at least and see what we have. All right, it seems like these two might go hand in hand, but you could have a suspicious white powder or uh, that white powder could have been in a suspicious package. So how would you deal with a suspicious package call? It's going to be much in the same way. Uh, With any suspicious package, we need to look at the location, the threat that was actually um, maybe given to those employees, and also what that package looks like according to who had found it. And those are all going to be done through our alarm room or through... APD dispatch. And one of the first things that needs to be ruled out is the chance for an explosive. So APD will send their bomb squad in and they'll do the initial testing before we go through any of our follow-ups with the radiological, the biological, and chemical. All right. I'm glad I got all you experts here with me today. So one thing I like to do is, you know, think of the very worst case situation let me try to paint this picture here. So it's December, icy roads, and you get dispatched out on I-40 uh, westbound, and there's like a 12-car pileup, and you show up, and it turns out a tanker rolled over, and it's actually 12-car pileup. There's about 20 patients. How would you respond to this call? So this probably gets dispatched as a 29 Bravo or 29 Delta. Yeah, I think it'll actually, let's just say it's a good dispatch, and they send you a low-level MCI right off the bat because they, they know that it's a 12-car pileup. Okay. So the first units that arrive on scene are going to give a size up, and if they see an overturned tanker, like you said, and they have a bunch of trauma patients, they're probably going to need to call for more resources if it's a true true MCI. Probably a uh, first alarm medical? He said they dispatched the first yeah. alarm medical. Yeah, okay. And so. now looking at it from a... From hazmat-wise, so as soon as the squad gets on scene, they can see, um, or maybe one of the initial crews is going to see, there's a placard on the side. Again, just walking through the steps of now this isn't, we're not talking about MCI today, but how do we deal with the the hazmat part of this scene? So we need to identify what that tanker was carrying, first of all, and if a placard's visible, we should be able to do that, unless it has just a general placard that says miscellaneous or something like that. But if we can identify whatever it is that it's carrying, we can look it up with the emergency response guide or any of the number of apps that that we have, Wiser or Cameo Chemicals. And it should give us an initial isolation distance if this is spelling on the ground. Okay, so even though, you know, we're used to rushing in there, this is trauma, this is a bad accident, you're saying that's not going to apply on this response? Uh, That just depends. Yeah, I mean, if we have a bunch of people on the ground who need need help, then we should we should put our SCBA on in our bunkers and get them out so that we can transport them. And then once we have all the patients out, we would slow down and try to figure out what this chemical is and then how we'd go about mitigating the scene. Okay. And then what are you, are you going to do like a mass decon on these, all the people involved? If we have reason to believe they've been contaminated, yes, we would. And okay. unfortunately, it's December. Um, but the best thing we have for mass decon is water. And our pumpers all carry water, so we could do something as simple as spraying everyone down um, before we load them up in an ambulance, which I know sounds incredibly messy, would probably make ice, and these people would be super cold, and they'd be sopping wet in the back of an ambulance. But at least we could get off as much of the chemical or whatever they were exposed to as we can before they're transported to the hospital. 
And okay. I, know, I know you're talking a lot about it being cold, and we don't want to forget that we can call out the hazmat trailer that has the tent with the heaters in it. Um, so if we do have time, depending on how these patients are presenting, we can bring that out for them. So that's getting getting the patients off scene, getting them deconned. And then what about dealing with the actual hazmat incident? Where do you go from there? Um, you said hopefully you can identify a placard number and then look up the response guidelines. Exactly. If it's anything significant, we're probably going to have to shut down uh, the interstate, both eastbound and westbound at that point, which creates anytime you're messing with interstate commerce, it's a big deal. So we would need the police to help us do that. And then as with hazmat, we would slow things down once all the patients were out and it would probably be a long process figuring out what we have and then how we're going to mitigate that. Um, figuring out everything we have on the truck, which if it's there's a placard and it's one thing on the truck, that's great. But if it's mixed cargo, we would need to get basically the shipping papers to figure out exactly what's on there and and go from there. And this is going to be a long night, long cold night. Okay. So maybe with the patients, because in the hazmat training we learn it's going to be slow, it's going to take a while. But now if we throw patients in there, we've we've got to still take care of them and do some kind of a gross emergency decon on them. Exactly. Yeah. Like I said, water is probably the best thing to use generally for that. Our pumpers have it. They have a lot of it and we can spray people down. But um, Mark, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you could bring out with the hazmat trailer and the decon capabilities. Okay. So the best thing that we can actually do is what Captain Charlton was saying is we can use the mass quantities of water that the pumpers do pull out, put two pumpers on the side, Maybe a ladder on the top and just discharging a whole bunch of water. Uh, what we have at the in my trailer is we do have the big tents, and we could individually tell people to go females on one side, males on the other side, and they could actually start disrobing, which will be the best thing for them to do since if they have any chemical on them or anything like that, to get rid of about 95% of if they've been exposed to any chemical. And then they could just go into the tent, rinse themselves off, with the little shower heads that we have, and then proceed on to the ambulances and be transported out. But we do have one big shower tent that does give us uh, the benefit uh, to put those two people, to put the people on different sides. And we could run them in like quickness through each one. All right, well, thank you all for coming on. We tried to run through the gamut of, uh, you know, most common calls the squad's gonna go on. And then at the end, I tried to throw you a worst case scenario just to get everybody thinking about how, how you would respond to that. Um, before we go, do you, any of you have any closing thoughts? One thing that I encounter on a somewhat regular basis is when we respond to, I don't know, let's say an oil drum or something that's been dumped on someone's property is they want us to take possession of that, to get rid of it, to take it. And we don't do that. Um, as soon as we take possession of something, it becomes our problem. And that's not what we do. There's a, a company, Advanced Chemical Transport, that will come out and mitigate that for people. Um, but we're not going to be taking possession of anything. I can imagine um, somebody might just drop something right at the door of the fire station, though. Would that change it? Uh, it's happened before, yeah, right at Station 4. It ended up being a big mess. But, yeah, I mean, that, I guess that's ours at that point. Unfortunately, it's on city property. So, yeah, we, we're still going to be calling Advanced Chemical Transport probably to take it away. It's just we'd be responsible for the bill at that point, as unfortunate as that is. Mm. And we don't clean up. Okay. We always mitigate the situation, but we don't clean up, uh, especially in private property. We don't mess with anything. If there's something that is leaking, bad, that's going to damage 
or hurt anybody in the in the city or or personnel people uh we just don't clean up we just mitigate the situation and that's it and like captain was saying for overpacking and the rest of the cleanup that will be act all right okay well that'll wrap it up for the hazmat podcast thanks everybody for listening talk to you on the next episode